This is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. I'm Biddy Martin, president of Amherst College. The goal of a liberal arts education, to paraphrase the scholar William Cronin, is to expand human freedom in the service of the larger community that grants us that freedom. In today's episode, Professor Tony Jack class of 2007, describes the freedom he experienced at Amherst to think and explore, and the ways those explorations have continued to shape him after college. Here's Tony. Hi, everyone. God, it's it's a great feeling to, to be part of this celebration. My name is Anthony Abraham Jack. I am a proud member of the class of 2007. Currently, I am a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows, an assistant professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and the Schutzer Assistant Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. I am also the author of The Privileged Poor, How Elite Colleges Are Fairly Disadvantaged Students. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. Dr. Anthony Abraham Jack, who goes by Tony, graduated with a dual degree in women's and gender studies and religious studies. Since graduation, Tony has gone on to hold fellowships with the Ford Foundation and the National Science Foundation. His work has expanded the conversation around higher education by focusing on the varied experiences of lower income and first generation college students. You know, as a first-gen kid, I didn't know much about many colleges. In my neighborhood, there are only three Ivy League institutions, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And the only reason why Princeton makes the list is because of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Outside of the schools that you hear about on Saturday because of football, especially, you know, in the South, you don't really hear about many of the smaller selective schools. You don't hear about Amherst and Williams. But I remember when Amherst called my prep school that I had transferred for a year, my senior year of high school. And Don Falstick asked the question, hey, do you have anyone who can pass our admissions test? My coach said, yeah, we got to do it this year. Who can? And that's when, um, <laughs> that's when I first heard the name Amherst. I talked to Coach Falstick. It was great. It was a great conversation. So I remember going home first and telling my brother that, you know, the coach from Amherst College um, called me and he was like, what's an Amherst, right? Because <laughs> we didn't even know how to say the name right. But then we, we, when we got to a computer to Google what Amherst was, he was kind of silent. You see, for him, we didn't know what it was, but the fact that a U.S. president went there, that was big for him. And it was big for me too. It was a signal that something was going on. And then we started to do more and more research. We're like, wow, this place is pretty good. It was highly ranked. It was, people said great things about it. But then I told one of my friends who I had met at the prep school that Amherst College called and his dad overheard me. And he was like, you have to go. My first day at Amherst was when my brother, my mother and I arrived 
Now we drove from Miami because we were all afraid of flying and we couldn't afford the tickets right then and there anyway. The morning that we were allowed to move in, I found out that my room assignment was Pratt, um, old Pratt, not new Pratt. And so we drove up to the Noah Webster Circle. We parked the car like on the, on the actual, the green. And we get out, we stretch, and then my brother like just bust out laughing. And he looks at me and he said, Tony, y'all paid how much for school here and y'all got rats? He had seen a little, a little critter run across the yard. I said, Dave, that's not a rat, that's a chipmunk. And we bust out laughing, right? Because we were so nervous. We were so nervous about the drop off, about me being away from home on my own for a long period of time for the first time ever. You know, it was just really, really wild <laughs> to think that everything that we had worked so hard for was finally here. No more, no more waiting, no more, no more anything. My family and I, my brother, my mom and I just, I guess, did what a whole bunch of people did that day. And we went to Walmart, loaded up on things, and then they had to leave because my family um, couldn't afford to take off more than more than that that day really because back then amherst had a nine-day orientation and the families who stayed those full nine days were not the families of those who were security guards and and janitors and i was really surprised by how much i began to fall in love with the campus you know some nights i was walking back from Merrill. Other nights, I would just be leaving my job at the gym, and I would particularly walk by certain spots specifically just so I can just have my moment of peace. And that was just really, really, um, really surprising for me, given that that's not really something that I do in in Miami. And so I was glad for that 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 added exposure. I only missed three days of classes my entire time at Amherst. And I remember the first day was October 31st, 2003. And the only reason why I remember that is because it was the first snow. And I ended up slipping because I had never walked on it before, like for real, for real. And I was just like, it's cold, it's wet. I'm not leaving, I'm going, I'm staying inside, I'm going to sleep. And now Grant, it didn't really snow. It was more of a dusting. Everybody was just like, is Tony gonna make it? Like, cause it was just so, I remember it being so cold that morning. But I was determined to make the most of Amherst. And that meant going to class, going to talks, going to lectures, going to events. I was also a very present student and I was, you know, on the search committee for the new Dean of Residential Life. I was on the MLK committee. You know, I ran the Octagon. I was a diversity intern. I ran, you know, I was a tutor in the Quantitative Skills Center. You know, I was student security. I was a lot. But I'll never forget the story that Dean Hart told me. He, he, he saw me in Converse Hall, which is where the, the Dean Suite is. And he called me over and said, hey, Tony, I got to make you laugh about something. He's like, my secretary got to my door and said, hey, Tony stopped by. And can you give him a call when you get off, when you get done with this meeting? And he said, do you know that I 
actually started to call you and not Tony Marks until I realized that she meant the president. I, we both laughed at it, and and it and one it shows that you know we were we he, he and I had a good relationship. But that's just kind of like the student who I was. I was always present, and I was always visible, and not just because I was a six five black man walking around campus. It was because if I said I was going to do something, it was done. If I said I was going to be someplace, I was there. You know, I worked my butt off and and honed what natural abilities I have to to be better. I knew the staff members of these centers. I knew the workers in the dining hall, the custodial staff, because they were just as much a part of Amherst as um, some of the faculty members and administrators who I met. It's hard to talk about the best specific moments about Amherst because Amherst is where I fell in love with the small things, the everyday moments and the everyday adventures of life. As busy as I was, I learned to take my time a bit at Amherst. I mean, yes, I can recount, you know, seeing the roots in concert. I can recount Jeffrey Wright crashing our reunion tent and and having this a quick conversation. Professor Jack also ran into another alum you'll be hearing from later in this series, one whose reunion tent I also crashed, as I recall. I can talk about meeting Patrick Fitzgerald for the first time and starting a, a friendship that when I went to Chicago, a couple years later, I was able to, to meet up with him and have a conversation and have dinner. It was laughing in Valentine, in that section right where the trays are, where we always sat and laughed and laughed at everything. Like it was, it, it got to the point where you spent as much time in Val as you did in class, because that's where the real moments of debate, learning, love, anger, hope was, was ever present. And like so those are the moments that 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 bring me back to when I think about specific great moments of Amherst. It's, it's those little small things that sometimes passes in the blink of an eye but somehow stays with you forever. One thing about my experiences at Amherst was my connection with faculty members. One of the best things about Amherst is the faculty. I remember taking classes with Susan Nightage and knowing that she, for a time, chose the 8.30 a.m. courses so that she could be the person to drop off her, her daughter to school and would bring us apple cider donuts and apple cider uh, when we took uh, those early morning classes. Professor Bumiller would also open her home one, you know, one, at one class a year and make us the most amazing brownies you will ever have in your life. It was the way in which Amherst's relationship with faculties was both about the academic development, but also, but they also made it very personal. They were invested in their craft and in their students. And I try my best to be just as invested in making sure that my students better understand inequality, better understand how poverty shapes students' educational trajectories, but also invested in their personal growth and development. And that, to me, 
is incredibly important and one way that Amherst is with me every day. And I realize that as a professor now, my style of teaching is truly connected to Amherst because Amherst teachers' mode of teaching is, you know, 75% teaching, 25% mentoring, even in the classroom. The way how they push you, the way how they get you to think, get you to reflect. It's a little bit different than what I've seen in other schools as I've traveled the country and even as I've attended Harvard. And I, I try to bring that into my own classrooms. The, the kind of connections that you can make with students and get them to think deeply about questions um, is what I remember, you know, what I loved about what I loved about Amherst. But if it's one person who's had probably the greatest impact and also over the greatest amount of time is Kristen Bumiller. I mean, she's a member of the family. I have spent birthdays at her house. I have spent holidays. When I gave a talk at the State House, she and her son were there. She's been at every major talk that I've given in graduate school. When I, I took three classes with Kristen, the way in which she inspired intense conversation and debate about fundamental issues of inequality, citizenship, rights, poverty, social policy, in a way that everybody felt invited to the table. Her mentorship style was holistic in such a way that I've benefited from that throughout my entire career. As I was on the job market and it all boiled down between a decision I had to make between Harvard and Yale. Do I come to the Harvard Graduate School of Education or do I go to Yale University for sociology? We met at a coffee shop in Cambridge and we sat down for three hours. The conversation was like, oh, Tony, how are you? How's your mom? How's your brother? How's your nieces? How have you been? And then we started 30 minutes later to talk about what it is that I want in the future. Where do I see myself? What do I want to do? And then we got around to thinking about, should I stay at Harvard or should I go to Yale? And then when we shut down the shop because it was closing and we didn't realize it, she walked me to Harvard Square because she saw that I was still a nervous wreck and making the biggest decision of my life. And she said, well, whatever you do, she said that she'd be proud of me and that I should go with my instinct because it got me to this point. And so she didn't, she wasn't heavy handed in which way she was directing me, but she reminded me to trust myself. Amherst was a place where I finally felt I can be wholly me. You know, I didn't have to play football if I didn't want to. I didn't have to pretend to be someone or part of me had to pretend to be someone I wasn't. I was able to just be. Graduating from Amherst, wow. Uh, <laughs> I still remember that day. Class of 2007. I am joined by the whole faculty and how impressed we have been by you. It's, it's a memory not that I have great details about, 
but it's one that just means the most to me. To know that I did it. To know that that I was really a we. And not just, you know, yes, my family and, and friends, but also my professors who pushed me, my friends who reminded me that I could do it. It, it, was, it was just such a monumental moment. And it was special because I worked graduation every year I was at Amherst. I worked commencement and reunion. I love the pomp and circumstance. I love the robes and the, the rights and privileges pertaining thereto and, and the conferring of the degrees and the like. But my graduation was a little bit of a, of a deviation. It was weird because I had been followed by the New York Times that entire week um, because Sarah Reimer was doing an article. And I learned that Saturday that the article had got bumped to the Sunday New York Times, and it, and it had got promoted to the front page. I didn't quite understand exactly what that meant, but I know it was something good. But it was kind of weird because everybody was reading the New York Times and they saw me and they kept, you know, people were pointing and like, oh my God, that's Tony. I had no idea. Like, I just heard that over and over again and I realized that the article had came out, but I didn't see it until later that evening. And of course my family was there, but they had, the New York Times had released my video essay the night before, so a lot of people um, had seen it, and I actually came back into the room, and my family was crying because they had seen it, but I still, I still hadn't yet. But on graduation day, Tony Marks read out a prize, the Obed Finch Slingerland Memorial Prize, and it could have been because you know the whole New York Times thing, and they were like building on the moment. But when he started reading it out. I remember I was sitting next to a good friend and I reached, I looked over to her and I said, this must be a, the prize for a friend of ours. And then he said my name. And it felt like a bomb had went off because you just heard screaming and clapping and everything. It just felt like an out-of-body experience. I I was brutal crying. I barely made it up the stairs. Like I remember seeing Greg Hall's face and then Tony Marks and then going downstairs. And yeah, it was it was <laughs> it was a fitting end to an adventure that I never thought I would ever embark upon. Professor Jack went on to Harvard and wrote a dissertation as part of his PhD program. That dissertation was published as The Privileged Poor, How Elite Colleges Are Failing Disadvantaged Students, and has sparked conversations about what colleges and universities can do better. I'm very happy to report that The Privileged Poor has been well-received, and not just by colleges like Amherst and Harvard and Yale and Princeton, but at colleges like Kenyon, Muhlenberg, University of Michigan, um, local community colleges have also been able to grapple with the work because the book is not so much about elite colleges. It's mostly about how inequality shapes the path to and through higher education. I've been fortunate to receive a number of awards for the book. I'm very thankful for this because I wrote the book in a 
accessible in an, in an accessible way. It's not full of jargon. It's not full of a whole bunch of $5 words. It is meant so that anyone who picks it up can read it. What's the point in having only other PhDs read it when college presidents, when senators, when congresswomen and congressmen, when school principals, when high school teachers, when high schoolers themselves want to pick up and understand what's coming down the pipe, they can have a sort of a roadmap. And I'm really thankful for um, being able to have this platform to push colleges forward. This work, especially the book, is a culmination of my very, what I thought was a very different trajectory to college. But then I realized when I got to Amherst that my detour through a kind of ritzy private school was actually a well-trodden path for many um, lower income and first generation college students, uh, which I am both. I came to the project that became The Privileged Poor because Every book and article that I picked up, scholars were talking about lower income and first generation students as if we were the problem. My work is so inherently personal. I am a first generation college student. I was a lower income college student. You know, I I remember so many firsts at Amherst and so many firsts even at Harvard when I came for graduate school, and then I relived them again as I interviewed over a hundred students. Because my research is not about one school. It's about how poverty and inequality shape the life chances of children and youth. I'm a sociologist who believes that if you know if you're doing work that has real world implications, then it's your obligation to actually see those things be put into place. But I don't think that policy should be a paragraph at the end of a paper. Publishing The Privileged Poor felt like the culmination of everything. This is literally every decision that I've made about choosing to go along this path, boiled down into a couple of hundred pages. It is my story. It is the story of students who I came to care deeply about. It is a story of higher education. It is a story of America. And it was my moment to pause and, and put and, 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 and think about that. I used to get kicked out of libraries. I never thought I would be able, I would write a book because the home for books were not ever home to me. Libraries were not safe spaces or, or the way in which we, many people write about them or talk about them. That wasn't my experience. Because when we went to the library as kids, sometimes we were more watched than, than anything else. And so I had to stop and pause and reflect on what does it mean that my name would be on a book? My words, my story, my work. That was just wild. Professor Jack's success comes from his understanding of the complex challenges faced by students in colleges across the country. His research and personal experience shows that every institution, including Amherst, has issues to address. For me, my work is to hold colleges' feet to the fire. We don't just need policies to say, okay, now we can't discriminate against people. We need policies that address the past discriminations as well. There were moments of racism and prejudice. I remember 
the indicator made a joke or rather under the guise of satire made statements that Sean Bell gets killed after his um, bachelor party. I guess he has cold feet, literally. And this was right after Sean Bell was killed by police officers returning the night before his wedding. The lack of sensitivity to the moment and to the people on campus, those moments weren't easy. On many college campuses, even now, there aren't mechanisms to respond to racist acts or statements. Some people are intentionally making racist comments or statements to rile people up and then say, well, if we care about free speech, then I should be able to say it. You know, there was one student who, you know, who would tell you that you got in because you were black or low income or some kind of target group, even though they were legacy and won't accept the fact that their legacy status helped them. Those moments soured days at Amherst. And it wasn't always space to vent that anger or that sorrow outside of sometimes your own communities or dorm rooms. But if I can at least push colleges and universities to not just be accessible, but inclusive, and hopefully that has a ripple effect in the sense that not only are we admitting more diverse students, but we are taking care, we are nurturing, we are empowering a diverse student body who then go on become alumni and in fields and professions that they can actually push for change then I feel that I am doing my job as part of this movement. Reflecting on the bicentennial, Professor Jack argues that inclusive access to education, particularly a liberal arts education, can be transformative. The value of a liberal arts education is, is similar to what I've been speaking about across this entire enterprise and thinking about the, the, you know, the bicentennial is it's freedom. Right. It is that ability to explore, to think, to make connections where there previously weren't any. The beauty of a liberal arts education is that freedom. It's that power, that liberating power to think. But I think Amherst is special in a sense that it's not always internal or inward looking. Right. We don't want to just be that place where knowledge is held within the boundaries of our campus. We are outward facing as well. And that means communicating. And that, that goes beyond writing well. That goes beyond just writing. It means understanding your audience so that you can communicate these brand new ideas in such a powerful and, 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 and influential way that people begin to do like you and think and question and even get angry and happy at your findings because it was, it's making them think in a new way and perhaps even an uncomfortable way, but you're getting people to think. And that to me is the power of a liberal arts education. But as we think about this, this historic, historical moment and the pushing back against racism, white supremacy and the like, we can't, what I, what I am fearful of is that we see this as a standalone moment and not another step along a journey. 
it is incredibly important that we ground our understanding of this present moment in the other episodes of American history where we are fighting, sadly, for the same rights, for the same recognition. I want people to actually grapple with history of much more than we have before. We can craft what is to come. Like we can engineer a different society. We can engineer a different way of, of life if we only have the courage and the imagination and the will to do so. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. A production of Amherst College in association with Cadence 13, narrated by me, Jeffrey Wright. Executive produced by Biddy Martin, Ian Mont, and Rebecca Kennedy. Produced by Catherine Duke, Bette Schumacher, and Sandy Janelius. Written, directed, edited, and mastered by Ian Mont. Technical and equipment support by Sean Cherry. Creative consultation by Catherine Duke, Carly Nardowitz, Connolly Stokes Buckles, and Molly Whalen. Music from Source Audio and Extreme Music. Archival support from Michael Kelly.